One of the exciting things I find when we come together in the study of God's Word together is that the Spirit of God's working in each one of us. When we come to the Word of God, the Scriptures tell us that God's Spirit is able to illuminate it, to, to make us understand it, to know what is there and what it's trying to teach us. When we gather and worship like this, it's an awareness that the Spirit of God is working in each and every believer in Jesus Christ because once you believe in him, he indwells us. And that Spirit is somehow working right now in this process as we come to the Word of God. Not just through my preaching, but what the Spirit of God is doing in your heart, in your mind at the same time. And that somehow he'll take the truth of this Word And with his own power in your heart and mind, transform you to become more like Christ. So I'm going to pray to invite the Spirit to do that work. To really examine our minds and our hearts. To somehow convict us, comfort us, encourage us, to mold us that we're more like Christ through the power of the Word of God. So bow together with me again as we invite the Spirit to do the work that it can do in us and through us. So we do come with this time at this time to look in the Word, to let the Spirit do that work. We invite the Spirit to join each of us in our hearts and minds to the work that it needs to do that somehow those things in our life, Lord, that are now our distraction, things going on at home, things in our family, Things at work, things that are broken down, concerns about health, concerns about finances, those things at this time that are really true and real, but yet can be a distraction from hearing your word. We ask your spirit to quiet our hearts and minds there. But at the same time, let your spirit open them up to hear your word, to accomplish what it needs to do in each of us, in the way that it can mold us and shape us to become like Christ, your dear Son, and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, today is one of those special days out of the year that around the whole world, churches are gathering and probably looking at the similar passages of Scripture and doing something similar. This is Palm Sunday. This is that day that we celebrate that triumphal entry of Jesus Christ into Jerusalem. And as we do that, it's just knowing churches all around the world are doing the very same thing. This one time out of the year that they may happen. Oh, it happens on Easter, Good Friday, and probably at Christmas too. But to think, other believers and other churches are singing, praising God, looking at similar passages of scriptures all at the same time. Now, as we come to this, we start realizing that the scriptures also talk about this in every one of the gospels. In fact, all four gospels talk about this Palm Sunday event and what takes place. Now, there's something when you study God's word. There's some tools or ways of thinking to help you understand it. They're called laws of structure. And you think about these, but you just pause to pay attention to them. So, for example, when you study the Bible, there's times that you come to that law structure called contrast. When all of a sudden it says one thing and then comes that important word, but. So when we've done the series on the commandments, we've seen that a lot. Where Jesus has said, it is said in the Old Testament that you should not, dot, dot, dot. But I say, and there's a contrast. There's times in the Bible where you also get the comparison. 
So in Psalm chapter 1, Psalm chapter 1, Psalm 1, it actually comes along and says, look, if you're going to be committed to the word of God, if you put the word of God in your heart, you will be like a tree planted by waters that bears fruit. Now, there's a third law that I find really important. It's called the law of proportion. And that starts looking at when you take the scripture and say, how much time does an author or a writer spend on certain events? So we come to this last week in the life of Christ. All four gospels talk about it. All four gospels give attention to this final week, starting with Palm Sunday, going all the way up to the ascension of Jesus Christ. But here's how important it is. When you go to the book of Matthew, you go to the gospel, 28% of his book, of the whole book of Matthew, is given to this one week and up to the ascension. 28%. Go to the gospel of Mark, 38% of the book is given to this one week and then up to the ascension. If you go to the Gospel of John, 48% of the book is given to this holy day of Palm Sunday all the way up to the ascension of Christ. In the Gospel we're looking at Luke, he gives 25% of his book to this final week up to the ascension of Jesus Christ. That tells me all four Gospel writers are telling us there's something very important to pay attention to in this final week of Christ. All four of them start the same way, with this triumphal entry into Jerusalem. An event that's created by Christ, an event that Jesus makes sure that happens in the way that it unfolds. In Luke 19 here, Starting at verse 28, we get introduced to this journey that takes place. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Now it starts off in Jericho in chapter 19, verse 1. And Jericho sits down by the Jordan River. It's about 800 feet below sea level. And it says he's his journey here, he's going to be ascending to Jerusalem. The geography there is you take this journey from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's about 15 miles. But before you get to Jerusalem, you got Bethany. you got the Mount of Olives. Bethany is about 12 miles away. So you start going up the road and you get to Bethany. And you're 12 miles from Jericho, about three miles from Jerusalem. You get back on the road, you have to go another mile to get to the top of Mount Olives. And by the time you get up there, you are now 3,500 feet higher than you were in Jericho. That's why it's called ascending to Jerusalem. But once you get to Mount Olives, you're not there yet. You have to go down the Kidron Valley, come up the other side, and now you're in Jerusalem. The Mount of Olives actually sits higher than Jerusalem. And Jesus is talking about this journey he's going to take all the way from Jericho, all the way to Mount Olives, down the Kidron Valley, and finally come to Jerusalem and the triumphal entry. He introduces it. He's going to come and ascend. But here's what takes place as he starts that journey. He's come along for a while, and all of a sudden he's going to come to the city of Bethany. They've gone 12 miles down the road, and here's what we read in verse 29. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany 
at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So he says, gentlemen, disciples, I want you to go into the city. When you get there, you're going to find a colt. It's going to be tied up, and I want you to just take that colt, untie it, and bring it to me. Now, you have to understand where Bethany is. Bethany, as we talked about location-wise, but the importance of that town. Bethany is also where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. Lazarus had been raised from the dead before. One of the other gospels identifies all the people that are gathering around Bethany all the time to see this Lazarus who was raised from the dead. It's a place that Jesus went many times. These were good friends of Jesus. Lazarus is the one that we get the shortest verse in the Bible. When he heard that Lazarus had died, it says what? Jesus wept. This is a friend of his. This is a town he's been in regularly. And it may have been he knew about this colt, but he says, go to the town. When you see the colt, just untie it and bring it to me. It's like, what? Imagine you were those two disciples. You're just going to town, untie a colt because it's sitting there and you're going to carry it off. It's like, wait a second, let's think about this. That'd be like me saying, okay, folks, here's what we got today. I want two of you to go out here. Why don't you go in the parking lot? And there's a Lexus out there I think looks pretty cool. <laughs> oh, the keys are in it too. I want you to go out there and bring it. Just bring it back to me and we'll take off for the afternoon. It's like, what? You wouldn't do such a thing like that. That's what they're told to do. Go take it. And he tells them, if anyone asks it, just tell them the Lord needs it. That's the instructions they're given. So what takes place? Here's what we read. So those who were sent away, found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the coat, its owner said to them, why are you untying the coat? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. So all of a sudden you have this individual who as soon as he hears the Lord has need of it, he let it go. You ever had the Lord come into your life and says, the Lord has need of this? And were you willing to let it go? Has there something that you've owned that the Lord has need of it? That you were willing to let it go? There's something that you own, something that you have, some gift you could give, and the Lord says, I have need of it. Have been willing to let it go. Or have this tendency to keep holding on to more and more. Somehow those who follow Christ hear his voice when he says he has a need for something, and they find themselves giving it away. Why? Because the Lord has need of it. And this individual, this owner, whoever it was, as soon as he heard that the Lord had need of it, he gave it to the Lord. And disciples took it away. When they bring it to Jesus, here's what happens next to them. They brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. So now they have this colt, this donkey, and it's here. They take their cloaks off, and they put them on that colt as well. And then somehow, assuring everything's in place, Jesus now sets on that colt. And they're going to leave the town of Bethany and move on to Jerusalem. Keep in mind, Jesus has set this whole thing up. 
He knew where the coat was. He's taking the journey to Jerusalem. There is not an event already going on. There's not like this festival is taking place. Jesus shows up. Jesus is making plans for what is going to happen now. Passover will be taking place in Jerusalem. People are coming in. But this event is all planned by Jesus. What's going to happen on this journey? It's not like he walks into a group of people that are there. He is creating this event himself for some reason that this needs to take place. There's some reason that he knows he has to do this. There's something he is demonstrating to these people and to his disciples. There's something they need to know and understand about him. And he wants to make it so clear that he's in charge of this event. That he is going to parade from Jericho all the way to Jerusalem. And that they can see and understand what they need to know as followers of Jesus Christ. So the event continues. He is now on the colt. Verse 36. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. Now get this picture. They've come out of Bethany. They've got a mile to get to the Mount of Olives. We're going to find out that they're not till the other side of the Mount of Olives where they start singing. They've got a whole mile that they're going along this way. And people are taking their cloaks off and laying them down on the ground so that the cold can walk on those cloaks. And I want you to think about how that takes place. Do you think people just took their cloaks off and just threw them on the ground? Or do you think they found themselves sort of organizing them on the ground? I'm certain there was somebody with OCD there organizing them. <laughs> Nobody would let them just throw a pile. There. there were people on the ground on their knees organizing those cloaks on the ground. And Jesus is now riding on that coat, on those cloaks on the ground. And that's gone for about a mile, it says, that this has happened. And they get to the top of Mount of Olives. And when you get there, you come up on the top of Mount of Olives. And as soon as you go over the peak, now you can see Jerusalem and all that is there. Here's how they describe the next part. And as they were drawing near, verse 37... Already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So they've come up over the top. They just started down. And you may be aware of this, but as you come down, the Mount of Olives is more of a ridge along there. But down on here, it's called Mount of Olives because all the olive trees. And there's also the Garden of Gethsemane that's down on this hill as they go down towards Jerusalem. As they go, his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Now get the picture. If these people have been laying their cloaks on the ground as they've gone, and they're actually on their knees putting these things down, and now as Jesus comes down the hill and they come to Jerusalem, They start lifting their voices in praise and singing and shouting out to him. You've got voices of praise. You've got knees of worship. As Jesus comes down Mount of Olives towards Jerusalem, why are they doing this? Because of all the things they've seen him do. And take note of this multitude. They're called disciples. 
This is not just a wandering group of people that show up. These are followers of Christ. And disciples used in a variety of ways here. But it's saying those who are following Jesus, why all the things they've seen. These are people who may have been there at the beginning. Who knows, they could have been at that wedding feast when the water was turned to wine. There have been some of these people who were actually there when all of a sudden said, Lazarus, come forth. And they saw Lazarus come out of the tomb. There are those who all of a sudden could have been there when all of a sudden he took that hand, the man who had been lame for life, grabbed his hand and lifted him up and watched him walk away. They could have been there when all of a sudden he put that mud on the person's eyes. When they washed it off, they could see. It's the one who could never hear. And all of a sudden he spoke and they could hear for the first time. And his disciples had seen all that he had done. They'd heard his teaching. They saw him challenge the Pharisees and scribes. They saw all that Messiah was supposed to do. And they find themselves at this point, coming to Jerusalem. And they find themselves kneeling on the ground, putting the cloaks down, and raising their voices in praise and worship. And here's their song they sing. Verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They quote Psalm 118, verse 26. Notice what they call him. Blessed is the king. They say Jesus is the king who is coming to Jerusalem. The king who is supposed to reign. The king who is supposed to rule. But just to understand this whole event is understood and made happening by Jesus. To understand that, turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Now Luke does not record this verse. In his text. Some of the other gospel writers do. To bring attention to it. Um, But keep in mind. Jesus Christ knows all the word. That is the scriptures. And in the same time. He knows the fulfillments that must be accomplished. By the Messiah. When he comes. Here's what we read. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud. O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus Christ sent two disciples into Bethany to get what? A colt, a donkey that he could ride on. That was his request, not their request. He knew where he was going. It was to Jerusalem. And he knew he was coming in peace as the king. 
See, it's understanding there's two different animals he could have ridden into Jerusalem on. He could have come in on a horse, or he could come in on the donkey. If you come in on a horse, it's like a general who's coming with victory from the war that he's been in. When you come in on a donkey, you're like an ambassador who's coming in peace. Jesus Christ knew he was coming in peace in his first coming. He will come as a conquering king in his second coming. And he rides a horse in his second coming, but a donkey in his first coming because he's bringing peace, which I don't think the Israelites understood. They thought the peace was going to be the overthrowing of Rome. And finally he would reign. But the peace that he is bringing in, knowing what happens during that week with his death and resurrection, is not peace among the Romans and Israelites. It's peace with God who are now justified through the death of Jesus Christ. He came to bring peace. But it's peace with God. He came to bring forgiveness of sin so that there's peace with God. He came to bring peace with God as the mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ's death mediated that, that we have that forgiveness and that his death is accepted by, for the forgiveness of our sins by his shed blood. And there is peace. There's peace between God and us through Jesus Christ. That is why he came. That's the king that he's going to be. That's what he knew was his destiny, not what his disciples were anticipating. They were anticipating something different than what actually happened. Even his own disciples weren't sure. The 12 were not sure what was going on. Their hope that he was coming to reign on the earth, not to die on a cross. And so it describes what they rejoice in, what they celebrate in, what they think is going to happen, but they sing peace is why he's coming. But there's others in the multitude. There's not just his 12. There's just not this multitude of disciples. We find out there's some others in that multitude in verse 39. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Why? These Pharisees understood exactly what was going on. They just heard his disciples sing that he was king, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Christ. They saw people down on their knees as he came by. They understood what they saw and what was happening. They understood that all of a sudden he was worthy of worship and praise. Somehow he, they noticed what was going on and they said, you've got to rebuke your disciples. This cannot be true. This cannot be happening. You must rebuke your disciples. And Jesus, Jesus' response, listen to what he says. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent... The very stones would cry out. Creation would cry out. This event is so significant. 
It will occur no matter what. That if he went from Jericho all the way up to Jerusalem, and if his people, his followers, his did not praise him, if there was dead silence as he came down the Mount of Olives, he wanted them to understand. You have to understand Israel. It is just a rocky, rocky country. There are rocks and boulders everywhere. He wanted them to understand, as you come down this mountain, I want you to know, all these rocks... They would have cried out. Think about it. God's creation vocally crying out if these people didn't say a word. He wanted them to understand, here's what's going on today. Even if the people were silent, God's creation would not be silent this day. Because there's one thing he wanted everybody to know that day. King Jesus is worthy of praise and worship. You need to understand that is true. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is worthy of praise and worship. That's what he just demonstrated. Everybody just watched it. Is he really, truly worthy of worship and praise? Is he worthy? I just say, yes, he is. You can look at my 12 disciples. They're the ones who put cloaks on there. I saw them on their knees as well. My 12 disciples were praise and worshiping me. Is he really worthy? Look at the multitude you have here. Did they not also praise and worship me? I am worthy to be king. Is he worthy? He looks at the fact that the rebuke of the Pharisees, that he actually rebuked the Pharisees. He is worthy of worship and praise. Is he worthy? He says he's worthy so much that he fulfills Zechariah 9.9. He is worthy of worship and praise. Is he worthy? He's worthy because why? He let them. He let them worship him. When you get into heaven in the book of Revelation, John sees all these wonderful things in heaven. And on one occasion, he gets done and he watches and he falls down at the knees at the feet of an angel. And he gets on his knees and the angel immediately says, get up. I'm a servant. I'm not worthy of worship. Now, it'd be fine if it happened one time, but it happens twice. Chapter 22, John once again with an angel falls down at the feet of the angel and starts worshiping the angel. Get up. I'm a servant. Worship God. But Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ let people get down on their knees. Jesus Christ let them praise him that he was king. And he did not rebuke them. In fact, if they hadn't sung that song, he said his creation would cry out that he was the king because he is worthy of our worship and our praise. Jesus Christ wants us to understand he is King Jesus who is worthy of our worship and our praise. And he demonstrates it on this one event that he's worthy of worship and praise. 
as he raises that question, even for his disciples, is he worthy? And he answers, yes, I am. We find that question is raised one more time in the word of God. It it doesn't stop here. I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. As John records that revelation of Jesus, he addresses the seven churches, records a worship scene of the creator, the Father in chapter 4. Then we get to chapter 5. And all of a sudden, things shift. And here's what we read. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I, John, began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so he can open the scroll and the seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, And when the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are of the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And we're reading this passage and all of a sudden, who is worthy? There's a scroll in heaven, a scroll in heaven that's sealed with seven seals and no one is found who can open it. And what it's going to be is the rest of the book of Revelation. Let's know what's going to happen next. What is the future of the earth? What is the future of God? What is the future of the new heavens and the earth? How do we learn anything about that? Who is worthy to open this? They can't find anybody worthy. Nobody worthy. Until the elder speaks and says, there is one who is worthy. The lion of Judah. And the description here goes on to describe him. As the lamb who's been slain is the one. This is Jesus Christ. This is Jesus the Messiah. This is Jesus the King who is one who is worthy to open the scroll. And it reads, And he went and took the scroll out of the right hand of him who seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of whom? The saints. And they sang a new song saying, take note here, folks. This is the same King Jesus that on Palm Sunday, people knelt and praised. And now when we get all the way to Revelation chapter 5, we are told this same King Jesus in heaven has people falling down at his feet and worshiping him. And they too will sing a song, but a new song, not the song that was sung on Palm Sunday, not the coming of the king in peace, 
Not that king, but a new song. And here's that song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open the seals. Why? For you were slain. And by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and people from every nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and under the earth and under the earth, I'm sorry, on the earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Folks, pay attention here. Every creature just like the rocks, but every creature saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might and evermore. And we've got the same worship, the same praise taking place of the same Jesus before the second coming by all of heaven and every creature and created being on earth, under earth, in the sea, all doing what happened at the first one when he came in peace. Because he's King Jesus. And he's worthy of our praise and worship. And here's how it ends. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Is he worthy? Yes, he is. Jesus Christ is worthy of our praise and worship. From Palm Sunday to the time he comes again and for us right now. And if he's truly worthy of our praise and worship, how do you worship him? What is it of yours that needs to be given to him in your worship? What praise do you give him when we gather on a Sunday? Do you actually sing with us? Or do you just stand there and let the sounds go? Because you're supposed to be praising God with your words and your songs. And without the masks, I can assure you when I've watched in churches, there are many who don't sing and don't praise our King Jesus. And he's worthy of your praise. And do you sing when we sing? Because he's worthy of your praise. And he's worthy of your worship. Of all that we have. That he may ask of us to give. Are we willing to worship and give that to him? Are we willing to give of ourselves? Are we willing to give of our things? Are we willing to give of our time? Are we willing to give of our money? 
Are we willing to worship him with all that we have? Are we willing to be on our knees to worship King Jesus? Are we willing to open our mouths to praise King Jesus? Because he is worthy. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of our worship. Palm Sunday, Jesus wanted them to understand one thing. King Jesus is worthy of our worship and our praise.